I can remember every detail about Beijing. The smell, the lights, the crowd. I remember Nasty Lucan go up and compete and give a beautiful routine. And I remember looking at her score and it was a, it was one point higher than the highest score I had conjured up in my mind that it was impossible for me to get a gold medal. I remember my heart just sinking. The entire world is being told. Do I even go out and compete? Do I just throw it? I remember thinking, well, if, if you can't win the gold medal, at least prove to the world that you deserved it. And starting my routine and giving the best routine of my entire life. I'd never felt lighter in my life. I felt like I was on top of the world. I remember seeing 50,000 people on their feet giving me a standing ovation. I told everybody it was the biggest honor of my life, but really kind of crushed my heart. I remember being given the silver medal on the podium. The person who did it gave me a hug and told me, he said, I'm sorry. And I remember that being really strange for me because kind of like I was being given a silver medal at the Olympic Games and being told I'm sorry. So it was kind of like a validation in my heart that I had failed. I got two more silver after that, then finally got a gold. But it was like once I got the gold, I, it didn't matter. But like, I felt like the damage was done. I would go to school every day and every single person would be asking about gymnastics or watching me on TV or reading an interview. I, every news article in the entire world said that I was gonna come home with four Olympic gold medals and I'd given 200% that day in competition and laid it out on the floor, but I felt like I had failed the world. I felt like since the world saw me as nothing else, then if I failed at being a gymnast, I failed at being a human being. I was 16 years old, living in a fishbowl. You know, every single person and their mother was applauding and congratulating me and also critiquing me because I was on a world stage. It was now about what I wore and how I looked. Man, I thought that interview was just so honest from Sean Johnson. I mean, that phrase that she said, she said, if I fail as a gymnast, Failure meaning not getting four gold medals. Have I failed at being a human being? Did that strike you? And maybe it struck you like, oh, yeah, well, it's gymnastics. She needs to realize there's more to the world than gymnastics. Maybe you're kind of flippant about it. Or maybe you said, hey, she was 16. She needs to grow out of it. Or maybe you let that idea sink a little deeper and say, well, I do the same thing. I just don't use the word gymnastics. For me, it's if I'm not a good mom, if I'm not a good dad, if I don't have a certain income, if I'm not making a big enough difference, if I'm not hitting the goals I set for myself five years or ten years ago, who am I? Have I failed as a human being? I have a lot of ways I do that. Oh, it's not gymnastics. But it's the idea of trying to accomplish things and, and, and do great things and big things. That whatever it takes, adrenaline rush, it happens when, when you define yourself by what you do. I mean, for me, I love being a dad. I want to be a dad long before I like girls. Thank goodness. Uh, I was able to find that 
because I so love being a dad that I would find my identity in being a dad. And at times my kids were behaving and doing well and turning out well. Man, I felt great. Look who I am. I'm a good dad. And then those moments that they lied, just like their dad lies, misbehaved, just like their dad misbehaves. Boy, who am I if I don't have kids that have the relationship I, I wanted or, or behave the way I hoped? Sometimes I define myself by being a good husband. Well, what happens if you're a good husband and your wife has a bad day? All of a sudden, your wife needs comfort. Your wife needs attention. Instead, you're trying to fix them because their unhappiness makes you wonder if you're a good person. So instead of being able to comfort my wife at times or, or enter her world at times, I was trying to fix her quickly so that I feel good about me because my worst depended upon having a happy wife. Or maybe it's the applause. As somebody who, who is on the stage a lot, you know, I used to have my Sunday night funk a lot the first 10 years of my, my time on stage because if people were responding well or said nice things after a message or, or the applause was loud enough, then, wow, I'm worth something. It was a good day. But if all the creative ideas it took months to put together maybe just seemed like, eh, okay, another good Sunday, would there be a funk at the end of the day where you wondered, man, who am I if I'm not successful, if I'm not accomplishing my goals? So we're going to look today at the difference between perfection and, and excellence. Perfection says in your heart, Boy, man, I'll, I'll be golden. I will be golden if I get a 10.0 in one area. And everyone else's area looks silly, by the way, gymnastics. <laughs> Mine's business. Business. Mine's being a mom. Mom. Mine's accomplishing great things or winning a triathlon. Perfection says, I'll be golden, I'll be good if I get that 10.0 in some category, but then I end up pursuing excellence as a sense of my worth. And if I fail at this, if I don't accomplish all my goals, who am I? Now, the Bible offers an incredible solution to this that still has you loving excellence, but it says, I am golden. When I get a 10.0 that someone else gave me, someone else's 10.0. See, Jesus says, he, everything you did wrong, he paid for, he died for, the things you did wrong are probably worse than you even think, and he knows it, and he forgave it. And you can be accepted now. Your identity now is you're accepted as golden based on someone else's 10.0. Jesus lived the perfect life you didn't live. And he says, I'll give you my gold medal. Put it around your neck. And now I can pursue being a dad and being a husband and, and being good at my craft. But I pursue that excellence out of sense of joy. It's no longer my identity. I'm going to screw up. I'm going to make mistakes. I'll learn from it. But it's not my identity. It's now something I pursue out of joy because I'm already accepted for who I am. And these truths come out of a, a deep sense of ancient wisdom passed down through the generations and I so want you to pursue excellence, but, but not from a sense of worth, but from a motivation of joy. Let me give you three proverbs on that. The first proverb, this is so true psychologically, this is so true spiritually, this is so true as observed wisdom. Whatever I decide to value the most determines how I value myself and others. It's like one of mine is being efficient. I love being efficient. And if I value efficiency the most, then when I feel efficient, I feel valuable. And when other people aren't efficient, 
You better believe I value them a lot less. Man, this place could really run a lot better. Boy, if I was in charge, things would run a lot better. So whether it's work, whether it's being a family person, whether it's being a marriage, what you value most will determine how you value yourself and also how you judge and value others. That's why in the book of Proverbs, this guy named Solomon, who just accomplished amazing things, he, he literally dabbled in everything. One of those powerful, richest men in history. And he said, I had to realize that I tried to value my accomplishments, and it just didn't give me the worth I wanted. So, so I tried pleasure, I tried it all, it didn't give me the worth I mattered. So, so I tried education, it was really great, but it didn't fill that void in my life. He said, eventually I found that my creator's voice of wisdom was what I needed to value most. What my creator said about me. Here's how he says it in the book of Proverbs. It's really interesting. He says, um, wisdom pursued me. Really interesting. He says it this way. Did not wisdom cry out for me? It was like the voice of God crying out, there's something else, there's something else. Listen, for I will speak of excellent things. You want to pursue excellent things? And from the opening of my lips will come right things. That's what I want, some right things. Receive my instruction, wisdom says. And not silver, value it more than silver. And knowledge from your creator rather than, something else that's valuable, gold for, or rubies. And all the things you can desire, as good as they might be, are nothing compared to her, wisdom. So a deja vu person will keep just trying out different, different brands. Well, if gold doesn't work, maybe my savings account will work. Maybe, maybe, maybe uh, I'm a good soccer player. Okay, wasn't a good soccer player. Maybe, maybe I'm really good at education. Oh, maybe I got my PhD. The deja vu person just keeps thinking if they, if they just change flavors of what it is that defines their worth, they'll find it. And that's why they get stuck in that cycle. I'll be golden if and when I get a perfect 10 in this category. Well, maybe it's this category. Well, maybe it's this category. And I just keep pursuing excellence as my worth. Now, a live and learn person says, I've just started to realize my soul is too deep for that. It's too big. My soul is only big enough that somebody that was perfect and is perfect and is the voice above all of her voices, when that voice tells me who I am and I value that voice above all other voices, I find my real value. And my my. Eternal hole in my life cannot be filled by some temporal item. But when I know that the God who made me, my creator, forgives me and gives me a 10.0, puts his gold medal on me, now I'm like, hey, I want to be a good dad and I want to pursue great things and I want to accomplish great things on earth. Not as a sense of worth, but as a sense of joy. Which is why Solomon goes on in this, this book of ancient wisdom. He says... It's like wisdom possessed me. And that might be kind of strange. He says, of all the things one might desire, all the things, let me try, I tried it all out. Of all the things you, cannot, you could desire, they cannot be compared with her, the voice of your creator through wisdom speaking to you. He says, the Lord, his voice, his value, what he says about me, it possessed me. And I'd be like, that sounds kind of weird, being possessed by God. Well, throw in the word obsessed, Right? Instead of being obsessed by finding my value by gold medals or obsessed by finding out my value is of whether my kids behave or my grandkids like me, I'm obsessed with what God says about me. And he says that he died for me, I was so valuable. He paid for everything I've ever done, I'm so valuable. And he gives me his gold medal because that's how he feels about me. 
I'm, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, and I have been established from everlasting. I've got this everlasting eternal hole, and over, only the everlasting eternal God can fill that hole. I remember I was a track, uh, in, in high school I ran tracks. So I was a triple jumper, uh, a 110 high hurdler, and a long jumper. So I loved the triple jump the, the most. I was, I was jumping like 43 uh, feet and a little bit more than that. And I, I was jumping like 21 feet, 10 in, in the long jumps. So I was pretty good at winning state, getting multiple gold medals at each one of our track meets. Until Kevin Bartlett moved to town. And it's amazing, my junior year, I was continuing to get gold medals, usually on four events, almost every single track meet, and Kevin Bartlett moved to town, and I got to tell you, what I hated most is that I liked the guy. But he was good at everything, played the piano better than everybody, played the cello better than everybody, and he came out and guess his events overlapped with mine, he ran high jump, but he also ran long jump and triple jump. And his first jump, I'm jumping 21-10. I'm like the, the gold medalist on our team and in state, and he's jumping 24, 25 feet. It was so far out of reach, I am not going to catch that thing. Now who am I if I'm the second long jumper? And his triple jumps were like 47 feet. I'm not catching up to that. And suddenly I began to say, do I enjoy this? Do I have fun with this? Is this a great chance to challenge me? Or am I defined by this? What you value most determines how you value yourself. One of my heroes was Carl Lewis. I love the story of him going to the, uh, the Olympic Games with Hitler and just kind of sticking it to him by winning it in front of Hitler in Germany. One of my favorite stories is Carl Lewis worked so hard to work for the Olympics and to be a champion in the Olympics. His father was such an incredible force in his life. The story is told that when his father died, he was still competing in the Olympics. And he comes to the visitation, sees his father in a coffin, representing the man who believed in him and encouraged him and coached him and helped him. It was actually at that funeral that he took his gold medal off. He brought a whiff to the funeral. And he set it in the coffin with his father. Everybody's like... You know how long it took for you to get that gold medal? His, his mom's even like, what are you doing? Carl Lewis turns to his mom and says, don't worry, I'll win some more. But what was he doing? He was saying this, this valuable thing, this gold medal, this performance, this accomplishment, it's not nearly as valuable as my dad and his view of me. And that's what happens when you move to understanding that whatever gold medal that you've been pursuing or that you have accomplished, it's nothing compared to your heavenly Father's view of you. And you can set that thing down. That thing can be subordinated to an eternal thing that really matters. What you value most determines how you value yourself and others. The second thing you'll find in yourself and others is that a, a hungry soul will eat anything. <laughs> Well, when you've got this big hole in your life, you'll eat anything. Just something to make me happy. Something to, to fill this void. Just something to know I have purpose. A hungry soul will eat anything. But a satisfied soul recognizes empty calories. Listen, I've chased that thing down. It's good, but it's not going to satisfy. I, I've chased that. That's good. I enjoy that. But it's not going to satisfy. You recognize empty calories. Here's what uh, Solomon writes in, in Proverbs as he's speaking about this. He says, a satisfied soul, a live and learn person, knows how to satisfy their soul by finding their worth from their creator. And so because of that, he loathes the honeycomb. Those are empty calories. 
I kind of like honeycomb. Whatever your honeycomb is, it's finding your identity in something that's not eternal. And a live and learn person, and if you don't believe me, I'd say try it. Go try it. And many of you have. You said, I had goals that were bigger than anyone else, and I accomplished those goals. You got a resume that is like the envy of all. And you're like, it was really awesome. And the fun of it lasted, the satisfaction of it lasted a week, a month, maybe even got a year out of it. And then you felt that haunting hunger in you saying, but what's next? Because it didn't quite satisfy. But a satisfied soul who gets a sense of worth from God can then pursue all kinds of things from a place of joy. The satisfied soul that loathes the honeycomb is contrasted from the hungry soul that thinks that every bitter thing is sweet. They're not sweet, they're bitter. He says, like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. If the Bible's hypothesis is true, that you're an eternal being, that can only be fully satisfied with an eternal answer to that question, then that's your place. And you can wander around, you can fly around, you can flap your wings all you want, and you can try all kinds of great stuff, it'll be fun, but it will not fully and finally satisfy. You're a bird wandering from your place. I've been a bird. I've tried lots of places, but it wasn't the place I was made for, designed for. In 1800s, there's a psychology book, and the foreword of the psychology book had the most profound explanation of how human beings work. Let me show you what the psychologist says. It's just profound. He says, we have the paradox of a man who's been shamed to death. Why is he shamed to death? Because he is the second pugilist. That's like a boxer. He's second boxer in the world, and he's been shamed to death. Why are you shamed to death if you're the second in the world? Or maybe he's the second oarsman in the world. How is a guy who's the second oarsman or the second boxer shamed to death? He says that he is able to beat the whole population of the globe. Minus one is nothing to him. He has pitted himself to beat that one. And as long as he doesn't do that, beat that one, nothing else counts. What's he doing? Same thing Sean Johnson did. If I fail at gymnastics, am I really a human being? Your husband can tell you, I love you, I care about you, but you're like, it doesn't matter because I remember what my dad said to me and I, I can't ever live up to my dad's standards. You're chasing the empty calories of something you can't control. I know God says I'm forgiven for everything I've done, but, but I can never forgive myself. Yeah, you valued yourself over God's view of you. And you see what's happened here? Is that of all the things you could try and encourage and build up, you're, you're second best in the world. That's right, I'm second best in the world. And I won't really be something until I can be first. In fact, in uh, 2008, no, 1992, they did a study of the Olympics of who's happier, the gold medalist, the silver medalist, or the bronze medalist. And, and they let the Olympians rate from 10 being ecstasy, one being despair, how are you feeling? And the gold medalist did really well. Didn't always last more than a week or a month, but they, they were scoring in the 8s, 9s, and 10s. But what really struck them is the happiness disparagement between the silver and the bronze 
the silver medalist averaged in that they came in at a 4.8 happiness. 4.8! That's below half. But the bronze came in at 5.7. You'll be happier with the bronze than you are with the silver, is what the research showed. Why? Because the silver medalist for the next 20 years is going to say, what if? If only. If I could just go back. I really would have been something if I could have beat one more person. The bronze person is like, I got on the stage. Right? And spiritually, from a spiritual ancient wisdom, the silver medalist puts themselves in the place of God. And if you've ever struggled with regret, the real problem beneath your regret is you're putting yourself in the place of God because you're saying, if I could go back, you can't go back. Only God can go back in time. And when you tell yourself, if I could go back, you are putting the burden of eternity on yourself and you're going to drive yourself into the ground. And that's why the silver medalist who's saying, if only, if only, if only, if only, if only, I'm defined by beating one other person. Nothing else matters. Rather than, you know what? I matter whether I got a silver, a gold, a bronze, or just was here, and I did my best and pursued my best, and I'll learn some things from this, but my value comes from what my creator says about me. It just changes everything. Are you a satisfied soul that recognizes the empty calories that life offers you? Because life has lots of flavors of things to offer you and offer me. It's your looks, it's your performance. It's your roles. It's what you do. And then when that thing changes, oh my goodness, my health, which I was so proud of, suddenly is something I can't control. I just found out I had cancer. Or I just found out I had uh, an injury that keeps me from competing the way I like to compete. Or, or maybe you found yourself, uh, the, the beauty was the way you saw yourself. And you're getting increasingly frustrated as you get older because you just can't compete with age to define yourself by how you look. Or maybe you found yourself retiring, your spouse retired, and the real question bouncing around in your head is, who am I if I don't have that title next to my name anymore? The satisfied soul recognizes those are empty calories that cannot satisfy your worth. That's why the book of Proverbs shows up and says, even charm is deceitful. Charm and beauty, they're good things. Who doesn't want to look beautiful? Who doesn't want, want to have charm? But they're deceitful as a way of identifying your worth or finding your value. See, a woman who fears the Lord, which means has awe for how God feels about her, boy, she's going to be praised. She's going to recognize that. Looks are important, but they come and go. They're not who you are. You're far more than who you, what you look like. You're far more than, than how you're aging. You're far more than who likes you or how much people applaud for you. And Sean Johnson, we already heard a piece of her story, just how honest she was. Let me give you another piece of her story where she shares how she started to fill maybe her heart, her life, her worth with beauty and charm. See how that worked out for her. Let's hear her story. I was growing up in the limelight. I was 16 years old and, you know, a, a muscular gymnast, and I was not even four, eight, and I was dancing next to girls who were, you know, supermodels. And I remember at, at 16, 17, from Dancing with the Stars, reading all of these blogs and reading newspaper articles and seeing headlines of 
people criticize my weight and my appearance and, you know, my personality and my character, and it affected me immensely. It drove me to, to try to change everything about myself. Trying to act like someone you aren't and trying to look like someone you will never be um, is exhausting and draining and, you know, feeling like the world doesn't accept you for who you are, kind of, it hurts your heart. Well, I love that phrase. It's just exhausting. It is. And I tell you why it's exhausting. You know why it's exhausting. Because you always could have done more. You could have been a better spouse. You could have been a better dad. You could have got a bigger deal. <laughs> you could have got four gold medals, not three silvers and a gold. You could be just a little bit more beautiful. You could be a little bit more hip, a little bit more upright. It's exhausting because it's never enough. That's why our third proverb that really speaks to that is this idea that, that false hope, it'll dry you up. But real hope is a fountain of life in you. The real hope that I am defined by something that's certain and secure. My worth is defined by what my creator says about me. But false hope, with just one more and I'll be happy. Just one more and I'll really feel like it. If I, you know, I'm single now, but if I get married, I'll, okay, what, well, married didn't work. Maybe if I get divorced and find a better one, maybe that will do it. Or, well, maybe if I have kids, that'll make my life easier. <laughs> maybe if the kids get out of the house and empty nests, it'll be better. Wow, who am I if I'm not a mom anymore? Real hope Finding your identity from the source of wisdom, boy, it's a fountain of life that allows you to pursue excellence with joy. But false hope, it makes your heart sick. That's what, what's what the writer of, of Proverbs says. Look how he says it. It's really interesting. He kind of extrapolates on this. Hope deferred, false hope, hope that doesn't come true, it makes the heart sick. And when the desire comes, when the real desire, you realize, I was made for this. I was made to know that the God of the universe I don't get a gold medal and hope I'm accepted. He gives me his gold medal, and I know I am accepted. When that clicks in your heart, it's like a tree of life. He who despises the word will be destroyed, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. You see, the law of the wise is a fountain of life to turn one from the snares of death. I said, listen, I don't like all these rules and, 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 and ideas that God has, but I trust him. If he's the one that forgave me everything I've ever done, if he's the one that was willing to come and then chase after me when I was kind of going the wrong way, I'm going to trust that his way might be better than my way. And it will be a fountain of worth. It will be a fountain of joy, a fountain of wisdom, a fountain of good decision-making. Yeah, I did a wedding a couple months ago. And at the wedding, I was talking to this... Uh, the bride-to-be, and uh, she's a very accomplished uh, student, very accomplished doctor, finished up her residency, was starting her work as a doctor, and just very, very impressive. As I was talking with the couple, he, uh, he said, yeah, I'm starting to get used to some of the idiosyncrasies that we all have and just some of the, the strange patterns we all have. I'm like, welcome to marriage. <laughs> I said, what's one of those patterns? And he says, she leaves Post-it notes everywhere. I'm like, well, I love post-it notes. Tell me about that. I thought it was like a to-do list. It wasn't a to-do list at all. She said, you know what, as a person who's, you know, been very accomplished and got great grades and graduated top of schools, 
and, and pursuing a career that I want to be successful, I have this tendency to define myself by those things, my education, my accomplishments, my career, the PhD next to me. So I write little post-it notes on my mirror, on the refrigerator, on the front door when I leave that tells me how God thinks of me. Just to remind myself that all these things I'm pursuing are awesome. But I'm really defined by the one who made me. He said, yeah, it was kind of weird to see all these things. I started saying, that's something I need to do. Because I find my identity by how well work did or didn't go, by whether the project went well or didn't go well. I thought, what a great reminder, a tangible way to keep real hope of how you're valued so you could pursue your career, your interests, and your hobbies from a place of joy. Now, as I was listening to, uh, to Sean Johnson's interview, She's got one final piece where she kind of clicks, where she says, and this is where I found it. This is where I went from all this false hope of thinking beauty would do it or gold medals would do it or, or being on Dancing with the Stars would do it. I finally found my real identity. It came from realizing I was golden based on what God did for me. It's a quick clip. Let's watch real quick. I feel like when all of that kind of compiled into to one big moment and it was this 2012 comeback and I had all these sponsors and I think around six months before the actual Olympic trials, I was hitting probably my all-time low. I was spending probably over 40 hours a week training. I was constantly trying to lose weight, but it wasn't happening. My parents wanted me to go see a psychologist or go see a doctor because they thought I was like clinically depressed. Um, I, I remember I was like losing hair. I wasn't able to sleep. I wasn't eating properly. I was struggling with, I wasn't 16 any longer. And so for months, I just, I just pushed myself in practice. And I said, you know, it's, if this is what will make the sponsors happy and my parents happy and my coach happy and the team and the USA national team happy. And if this is what is right for everybody, then this is what's right for me. I can just push through it. And, you know, day after day, come home from practice just bawling and bawling and not having any outlet of peace. I remember walking into practice one day, uh, getting up on the beam and, like, standing at the edge of the beam, looking down, getting ready to start flipping. And it's one of those moments that's really hard to explain. and really hard for, I feel like, a lot of people to understand. But in that one moment, I felt like God was telling me, you know, you've, you've been so distraught over this decision and been putting yourself through all of this and your family through all of this. And you've been afraid of disappointing a lot of people and, you know, not been yourself. But it's OK to, to follow your heart and to, to put it behind you. In that instant, I felt the entire world was like be lifted off my shoulders. And it was like in that one instant, I knew it was all gonna be okay. I was, I was giving my heart and soul and getting to a place that I was not proud of, all for that gold medal again, that I distinctly remember in 2008, 
not being the greatest thing in the world. And I think it's just kind of that validation that there's always more. God is the answer to everything. And Jesus sacrificed his life on the cross so that when I stood up there and I was given that gold medal, yes, it's a monumental and amazing experience and wonderful thing, but it's not the end all be all. Yes, I can work my whole life to become the CEO of a company or to make a certain amount of money or to win 12 more Olympic gold medals, but it's not the purpose in life. And he will always be my greatest reward and my proudest reward. Well, you really got to see that whole principle laid out. I mean, her heart got sick, right? She got sick trying to think if I could just make so-and-so happy. And maybe that's yours. You don't relate to any of the accomplishments. Yours is just, if I could just make so-and-so happy, my dad happy, my coach happy, my boss happy, that your, your, your worth is put outside of you, that somebody who's, who's temperamental or somebody who's unpredictable defines how you see yourself. But what if somebody who is predictable, and you're saying, well, I'm just beating myself up. You don't know all my flaws. What if somebody did know all your flaws? And what if they are as bad as you think? or worse, and he knows about it, he paid for it, and he forgave you for it. You don't have to minimize it, it wasn't as bad as you think. He knows it all, and he forgave it all. He died for it all. And then he takes his gold medal and says, I want to put my gold medal on you. This is what you're worth to me. And now, Instead of pursuing perfection, if, 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 I, I'll be golden if I get that 10.0 and I'm pursuing that, that, that excellence as a sense of worth. What if you say, I'm going to take the gold medal. I am accepted based on someone else's 10.0 and now I'm going to try and be a good dad and I'm going to try and make people happy if it's possible and I'm going to try and, and love people well and I'm going to try and do my job well and I'm going to try and accomplish great things but I'm doing it as a sense of joy. The God who made the world loves me and accepts me. I want you to pursue excellence from a place of worth, not as a source of worth. Do you see the difference? To pursue excellence from a place of worth. And this is what Christianity uniquely offers through Jesus. Not as a source of worth, because whatever that is, I'm telling you, it will not fully and finally satisfy. Because we always perform to the level of the expectations of those we care the most about and those who care the most about us. Now think about that. We perform to the level of the expectation of those who care about us the most and those that care about us the most. So who do you care the most about? And what would it be like to perform to the expectations of somebody who accepts you no matter what? Maybe you've heard of this uh, true story before. It's a study done in San Francisco. It's called the Pygmalion Effect. And the Pygmalion Effect was an interesting study they did in San Francisco. A superintendent got together, and he got together the 30 best teachers in the whole school district. He said, you are the 30 best teachers. You've inspired kids. You've had the best grades. You've had the, 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 the best um, uh, levels of, of kids coming into your classroom at one level and going out in the other direction. So we're going to try an experiment this year in San Francisco. The 30 best teachers are going to be given 30 of the best students in our entire district. 
We're going to see what happens when the best teachers work with the best students. Well, man, these teachers came to work that year. They were fired up. They were excited. So they knew they were working with the 30 best students, each one of them. And over that year, sure enough, every time they started doing the quarterly tests and they got to the end of the year, and these 30 teachers and their 30 students each excelled. I mean, they, they put the charts up, and it was head over shoulder above everybody in the district. And the superintendent came together and said, this is amazing. we got to have a meeting to celebrate. He calls all the teachers together. He says, i got to tell you guys, look at these stats. Look what happened when we did this experiment. The best teachers with the best students. You cared about them. You believed in them. You got the best out of them. They're like, wow, they just couldn't believe how successful it was. And then the superintendent said, but I have a confession to make. We didn't give you the 30 best students from the top level of the district. We just picked the top students at random from some algorithm. These were just normal students that couldn't have been in anyone's classroom. We gave you regular students but because you believed in them, because you saw them as excellent, because you saw the potential in them, you were able to get them from this level to this level. Because you cared about them, you believed them, and you saw what was in them that they didn't see in themselves. And now the teacher's like, we are the best teachers in the district, right? Oh, my goodness, this says a lot about us. He says, well, I have another confession to make. You're not the 30 best teachers in the district. <laughs> we picked your names at random from an algorithm that the computer gave us. You're just kind of regular teachers. But when those teachers knew that somebody who they valued believed in them, saw in them something that was amazing. When they were given teachers that they believed in or students that they believed in and saw something amazing. We excel to the level of those we care the most about and who care about us the most. So imagine if the God of the universe really did believe that you were so valuable, he sent his only son to die for you, to forgive everything you've ever done. You could say, yeah, now I'm going to take advantage of that. I guess you could. Or maybe you could use the Pygmalion effect to your benefit. You could pursue excellence even more than ever before from a place of joy, not a place of worth. Let's pray. And maybe you want to accept that gold medal this morning. Maybe start by saying, God, I, I admit, I've been chasing things to find my identity. And it's not working the way I want it. And God, I admit that I replaced you with something in my life. And I ask for your forgiveness for that. And Father, I invite your gold medal. Put it around my neck. Help me to value your view of me more than the view of anything else. Help me pursue excellence from a place of worth, not a source of worth. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, who day? No, that's yeah. <laughs>
So as you're heading out today, I know it's a big game tonight. We're excited about that. We got two things to mention. Um, we have a, uh, some, some brown bags you can pick up to help those in our community if you want to grab that, the care supply. We also have a great trip. So if you want to get to know some people at the church, a group of women are going up. It's a one-day trip. I went to college in Chicago. It's a great place. We're going up to the Art Institute, a group of women. One-day trip, see some specific paintings and, and pieces that are based on biblical uh, passages. Kind of a fun way to get to know people, fun trip to take. It's just for women. Guys will maybe go to the Super Bowl in a few weeks or something. So see you guys all. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for coming.